Welcome, friends, to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we're back with another From the Vault episode. This one's going to be for The Thing from Another World, the 1951 film. Uh, If you listened to our message last week, you're probably wondering where the black phone is. Because uh, that's what we were supposed to be covering this week. You wanna, we wanna share what what happened, James? Yeah. So after Luke had COVID, I got COVID, but yeah, yeah. we didn't get it from each other. Had to cop, had to copy me. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was like the new trend. Yeah, didn't get it from me. Didn't get it from me. I traveled to San Francisco, ended up getting it, unfortunately, and um, have been isolating for I guess now it's been close to eight days. Yeah. So it's been you know really great for my mental health and uh <laughs> so much fun being isolated yeah i know i just went through that um i'm, I'm actually like finally testing negative because i was feeling like better for a long time but still testing positive so i was being very careful about going out even though i don't know how worried i should be or shouldn't be according to the cdc but regardless i i'm finally testing negative so i feel like i'm i'm safe to to be among people again yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully here soon. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I've isolated for about eight days now. So that's, yeah. they say five days, but, you know, it used to be 10. So I, I don't really know if it's more of them wanting people back in the workforce. Yeah. Uh, and that's why it's five days. Or if <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like the, you know. What's the, the reason? Uh, I mean, you, you're sounded pretty good. So that's a good yeah, sign. I yeah. feel better. I'm still a little exhausted and everything, but I, you know, I had enough energy to record this bumper so that we can get it yeah. from the vault out. Yeah, I was going to do it on my own, but uh, James said he, he felt up for it. So we're both here, but yeah, maybe not. Uh, the main thing was we couldn't get to the theater, right? If it had been something you could watch from home, we maybe could have thought about doing an episode anyway. But we, this is a new release, and, and we needed to get to the theater, and it's just not safe for you. Or other people, mostly. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> not not uh, ethical, I guess, for you to do. Yeah. So we are going to hopefully be able to cover Black Phone in the future. Um, right. So our plan, our plan is we're going to tackle uh frankenstein next week mary shelley's frankenstein which is like a massive like one of the most important genre books ever written so i'm really excited to get into it we have a guest lined up so because of that we didn't want to move it we'd already moved it previously so i just felt like bad i didn't want to move it but what we're going to do instead is try and do the black phone i think following frankenstein so we should still be able to get it the only the only thing that we might throw a wrench in that is if they pull it from theaters by then yeah hopefully they won't so that we can still get to it um, but that's our current plan so if you're looking for the black phone and for us to talk about joe hill which i was excited to do uh we will still be getting to that um yeah and then hopefully you will enjoy our frankenstein coverage which will be coming up next but yeah this week we're releasing the thing from another world which is uh, a bonus episode we recorded back in 2020 uh so we're still a few years behind uh, as far as our, our releasing from from our bonus um, so we got a lot of content on there that's exclusive to Patreon if you want to check it out. But this one, I was looking at the notes and like, this is the one that had some sort of controversy about who actually directed it. Was it, was it this Christian Nyby or was it Howard Hawks? And I remember right. we talked about that. There was some mystery about the the creation of this thing. It's a classic film from the 50s, black and white. Real Weird, like, you know, golden age of Hollywood stuff went on like that, where it was like, who's producing and who's directing? And like, these people are like shadow directing sometimes and stuff. Yeah, um, which you'll get it. You'll hear that if you listen to the episode. But this is a who goes there adaptation, uh, which later was famously adapted into The Thing. So if you're a fan of The Thing, even if you haven't seen this movie, you might be interested in hearing this, uh, hearing this episode. And it was a good excuse for us to revisit sort of an early project for us in the podcast, in the lifetime of the podcast. It was, you know, 
within the first year at least. Yeah, I still absolutely adore the thing. So whenever I can talk about that, you know, project some more, it's always a good time. So anyway, uh, thanks for sticking with us. And hopefully we'll be back to more regularly scheduled programming soon. We're looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, But for now, enjoy this. We are doing The Thing from Another World, 1951 sci-fi film, sci-fi horror. Blast from the past, man. It would go on to to inspire The Thing, which is one of our favorite movies. At least one of mine, for sure. Uh, the 80s version, uh, directed by John Carpenter. I saw somebody somebody post that it was a Christmas movie <laughs> this year oh, yeah. For, yeah. for 2020 because it's like it's all about quarantining and, and being uh, trapped inside. I don't know. I thought it was funny. <laughs> well, uh, this one was, was a trip, man. I had never seen this before. Uh, how about you? Have you seen this one? I had seen this one before, yeah. Okay, well, this was this was all new to me. Um, I, I definitely had it recommended from people, especially back when we covered the original thing. And I thought I didn't think it would take us this long to get to it, but here we are. Um, and I had to like refresh myself and go read some of the plot summary of who goes there um, because it definitely gets the it gets the shout out at the beginning. You know, you get the little title sequence that says that it is based off of the 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 Campbell novella. And um, I went and read the plot summary just to remind myself of some of the differences. And I do, I do, ha- there are some notable differences here in what Definitely. goes down. Um, but this was a, yeah, this was an interesting adaptation and one that I like to think that uh, a young John Carpenter saw, maybe had read the story and thought like, yeah, this was good. And I like certain parts of it, but I think there's a lot of stuff that could, that was in the original that like I could do better and I could really do something horrific with. You know, yeah. I mean, this. Uh, I read that he said as much. Like this, really? this movie has been a huge inspiration for him, like his entire life, and many, many other directors. Actually, I, I want to get your. I just want to know, like, from a modern stance, how does the movie hold up? What did you think of it? Like, where, like, do you, would you recommend it to people? Like, where, where are you at with that? And also, like, are you able to situate it in like the past and enjoy it for that, or was it like you weren't able to escape like your modern sensibilities? It's a it's a mixed bag, I would say, of of all of that. Um, some things I thought held up remarkably well. I kept thinking like this is a 1951 movie. Like this is a very old film. Like, have we covered many other films that are that are this old? I, 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 was, I was struggling to think. Uh, um, a couple, but like maybe like you know, one of them, you know the original Snow, Snow White, White or something. Yeah. The I think it was like the 50s or maybe like early 60s version of Fahrenheit 451. Right. Yeah. I was thinking that it was later, though. You know, and this was an era where like it feels like film was growing up really fast. Um, I don't know if that's accurate to say, but it feels like to me when I see the 50s, like an early 50s movie versus a later 50s movie seems like a big jump. Um, and, and here, like it, it felt modern in some ways. And then it also had this like really old timey feel to it. Um, I noticed that the there was a certain sort of quippy kind of fast talking dialogue that I associate with like early thirties and forties radio plays that you'd hear at times. And it was like, okay, so this is still kind of in fashion. Um, and, and it was occasionally like characters would be talking over each other. I had to turn on subtitles to understand what was going on sometimes for this reason is like really fast dialogue back and forth. Some of the establishing shots and like showing the planes and stuff, I thought all looked cool. And I felt like they were like really trying to highlight, hey, we actually shot like a real plane and we're going to show you some footage of it. And they went back to that well a few times, but uh, I did appreciate it. It was neat. It's probably something you didn't see a lot of um, in that day and age. And and I thought it looked good. Um, you know, props to them for actually having 
like the breath showed up clearly on camera and i was like wondering how they pulled that off because it was like clearly they were on sets a lot of the time but they they made it convincing and it for the most part i i wasn't like taken out of it going like this clearly isn't somewhere cold you know i I felt like i was there and then hey there's a couple of women characters which we don't get in any of the other adaptations basically until we get to the prequel way later um so that was kind of (laughs) interesting yeah there's so much to talk about but to go back to something i said earlier i did find the the sort of piece in my notes uh directors ridley scott john frankenheimer toby hooper and John Carpenter all cited this movie as a key influential film in their lives. Yeah. Um, and we just talked about Toby Hooper as like the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then Poltergeist and the sort of idea of like, was it Spielberg? Was it, oh, was yeah. it Hooper? All of that brings me to another interesting thing that happened on this movie. Okay. So this movie, if you look into the credits or anything like that, you'll see Christian Nyby as the director. Uh, are you familiar with Howard Hawks? No. Okay. So Howard Hawks is like a really influential director from from this era he was you know contemporaries with hitchcock and john ford and some of these other like massive hollywood directors at the time uh 40s and 50s uh and he produced this film but it seems like from what everybody said and what what howard hawk said later in his life he sort of ghost directed this film in the same way that people think like, is it Spielberg or Hooper with Poltergeist? Mm. Um, so Nyby was his Christian Nyby who, real, who real is quick, credited. Real quick. Who is the one that people think is actually the director of Poltergeist? Is it more that people think it's Spielberg or they think it's. I mean, on paper, it like, if you look at, if you look at the credits, it says Toby Hooper. Okay. Um, but, but like it has, was. but but it has more of an. It doesn't have like as much of a Hooper vibe as it does a Spielberg vibe. If that makes sense. Like there's, it's sort of like that, the, and that's what happens with this film too. Is like there's okay. trademarks to the director, and you look at their later works or earlier works, and you compare, you know, Poltergeist to Toby Hooper's work and Spielberg's work, and you're kind of like, okay, this feels more like Spielberg. But I don't know. You know, the consensus is is kind of still up in the air. Um, but the same, this is like the same thing that happened here with, with the thing from another world. Like I said, er, later in his life, Howard Hawks would go on to say that like he did direct it and, uh, it's really fascinating stuff. But uh, to, to tell you about Howard Hawks, because so Howard Hawks says he directed this movie yet it someone else's listed f- from what I take from, from it, Howard Hawks directed this movie, but wasn't, didn't on paper at the time for whatever reason, uh, he was on set and like a lot of the direct, a lot of the actors have said like he, it was his show. He was running the show, calling the shots. Christian Nyby, this was his first film, and he was the longtime editor for Howard Hawks. So it's like Howard Hawks is on set. He's like calling the shots and all that kind of stuff. But on paper, for whatever reason, I don't know why uh, he's not the director. I wanted to tell you about Howard Hawks, though. He is an American film pr- director, producer, and screenwriter of the classic Hollywood era. Critic Leonard Maltin who I respect greatly, uh, called him the greatest American director who is not a household name. Um, And I was reading some critical analysis of why he's not a household name. And apparently it has something to do with the fact that he was so versatile in the movies that he would make. He explored many genres such as comedies, dramas, gangster films, science fiction, film noir, war films, and westerns. His most popular films include Scarface, 1932, Bringing Up Baby, 1938, Only Angels Have Wings, 1939, His Girl Friday, 1940, To Have and Have Not, 1944, The Big Sleep, 1946, 
Red River, 1948, The Thing from Another World, he's credited in this this sort of bio here, 1951. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, 1953, and Rio Bravo, 1959, which Rio Bravo is incredible. Um, I've heard of a lot of those movies, and, and it just goes to show how much I really don't know much about film in these early, <laughs> you know, the early part of the, you know, what is it, the, eight, uh, the 20th century. I, I don't know a lot of these movies, and so when I make statements like, oh, film was really growing up here, I feel like I really don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, you're right. You're, it's really interesting because <laughs> every decade meant something different to film. And, and yeah. the 50s was definitely a transition period like you. Um, well, I'll talk about it right now. But basically, um, the last part of the bio here is his frequent portrayals of strong, tough talking female characters came to define Hoxian women. So he's sort of like, yeah. and we get that here. And yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's not the best portrayal of women, for, to say the least, the way the men treat the women is still of that time and not like, for sure you know it's not what you come to expect is acceptable yeah. today and um, she's and she's sort of uh the prize that the the main character sort of wins at the end but she, like, throughout she is formidable she's brave she's smart um she's sort of like in it you know what i mean like she doesn't just go hide and not be i mean she does end up hiding but like she's in the room when the big like fire scene happens um I was impressed with her, and compared to the women we get in the other adaptations, it's uh, it's a pretty big difference. And the original story, this was this was something that was added in, and I think was a was a sort of breath of fresh air for it, for the story in that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed the character, and like you said, I, I like that she had some agency, and she was kind of like going toe to toe in dialogue with some of these male characters. Yeah, and um, she was I, I, she was also way more in control of her sexuality than I would right. have ever expected a character from this era to be exactly i mean this is 1951 yeah which like you say that's like it that's, must have been shocking i would think for people to see this yeah or, or for some people to see it. yeah uh, and then so to go back to howard hawks uh and like you're talking about this era of growing up so like i said you have john ford and, and this is the another reason why why people theorize he's not uh, howard hawks is not a household name is he did all these genres whereas john ford was like a western guy um mm. hitchcock thrillers that's mm -hmm. the thriller guy yeah he and did. that's the same thing happens in writing all the time where like uh, you know authors get sort of associated with a genre um and it's it, in some ways it's it's all it was almost necessary especially you know years ago whereas I, I hope that that's changing some now but it was it was very you get sort of tied to a genre and that's what you're known for like think about george R. R. martin now or stephen king like stephen king's known as the horror guy george R. R. martin's known as a fantasy guy yet both of those authors have written books in other genres maybe you don't know about them but they you know um stephen king for is it maybe an exception to that because he does have some famous exceptions but um, not everybody knows about them, and and that's the case, uh, you know, still today somewhat. And it's frustrating to me because I, I I want I want authors to be able to write whatever genre they feel like. <laughs> Obviously, for my own vested interest of like I I can't imagine being like a one genre author, you know. But uh, I don't know. We'll see if you get if you find success somewhere, it's hard to go away from it too. So there's always there's like kind of an inherent trap there, I guess. That you want to get caught in? I don't know. <laughs> You're like, yeah. I want to be successful at something. So if I find success in a, in a genre, why not just stick to it? I get it. Yeah. And, and like you said, it can you can associate like that genre with the person. And I think that yeah. can like lead to you having a larger following, whereas Howard Hawks didn't necessarily Oh, sure. Have that. And you can develop a brand around it. Right? Yeah. You know? Which, I mean, that's a marketing tool. Definitely. And Howard Hawks was, was sort of, you know, he, he did... Honestly, this is one of the most like 
in terms of like different source materials like he went all over the place especially for the 50s when like you're in the studio system even more than people are now um i did i did read that in an interview on npr fresh air with gene siskel and roger ebert when asked about the most scared they've been at the movies ebert indicated that this film scared him to death especially the scene where they incinerated incinerated the thing yeah that scene man uh, so that was uh since we're talking about that scene here, um, I there's another YouTube channel that I, I uh, watch occasionally that has a series where they do um, stuntmen react, and I think also um, they, they look at like CGI sequences. It's called Corridor Crew, and I know mm-hmm. we, we've talked about the channel a little bit and watched some of it. They had one um, fairly recently where they featured the, uh, this clip, this fire sequence, um, mm-hmm. in a stuntman reacts thing they had a stuntman on talking about the stunt and uh, it looks hairy man like when they kind of broke it down they're like this is a guy in a suit and they're throwing actual flaming liquid onto him like all of that all the flames and stuff are real also it looks incredible when they turn the lights out and then they start having this like white fire because it's black and white right like the way the fire looks is really staggering but when they slowed it down like you can see the like the flaming liquid like splashing on people in the background like going everywhere it just looks so out of control everything Um, was catching fire i don't know what was supposed to catch fire but everything was on everything was man like the the the, there's a person i don't know if it's still the woman in the actual sequence but the character is holding up the pad and standing and standing against the wall and then during the sequence the fire goes past like gets someone on the thing and then goes past and gets all over the person who's holding that pad whoever it is uh the whole thing catches fire it was just wild did you read anything about that sequence like behind the scenes stuff not really no i'm just amazed there's not someone who got like seriously injured because it looked it looked like it was chaotic no i mean i didn't see anything specifically in my research but uh, you know, very well could yeah, have. But been. they were talking on that on that episode about like what it would be like and like how you how you what kind of suit you have to wear, especially in that era, and yeah. like what it would have been like to be inside of it while you're getting all this stuff to on you and all this stuff. Like it was, it's pretty wild. I would I'd recommend going and checking yeah. it out. Uh, I guess I, I we're talking about the thing a little bit right now. So let's talk about like let's talk about some of the changes, right? So the first yeah. few scenes, the first the beginning of the movie is fairly consistent with the source material if i remember correctly like the a few, a few major differences up to an um, we're we're in the north pole instead of the, instead of antarctica um they're flying they fly out from anchorage there's also just more setup that, um, uh-huh. than any of the other versions um where we get like more of a description of like hey we're gonna have you we're gonna send you to this site and you're gonna stay at this area and like um there's they're almost at like a I guess they were in Anchorage at the start of the film. Is that where they were supposed to be? I'm not. I'm not 100 clear on that. But um, we don't get any of that. And later, you know, they sort of cut straight to the camp uh, in the other versions. But yeah, I mean, otherwise fairly similar. Going to inspect this thing. I think the 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 craft had arrived more recently in this version because they talk about being able to like track it on on radar. I think and like judge how it crashed and stuff. Whereas in, in the other versions, it's like 10 million years old or something. Yeah, that makes sense. I kind of remember that. So I felt like they were really adapting it pretty, pretty uh, consistently to what the source material was. And then at some point, I feel like it was like they brought it back and then there's like an electric blanket, which definitely wasn't what was used in in the story because it like it like breaks out in the in the short story, if I remember correctly, out of the ice. And in this, it was like a soldier like put put like a warming blanket over it, not realizing it was warming up the ice. 
and then uh, it's able to escape because of that. Yeah, I can't remember uh, exactly how the ice warms up, but there there might have been something like that. I'm not sure, but um, th- I mean, the major difference there is that this thing is like a plant, <laughs> um, and yeah, it's not it's not taking people's shapes and and forms, which is present in the original novella. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can see like Carpenter looking at that and going like, how how can you you know lose out on the whole like, are you a thing or not? Because there's the whole wire in the blood test happens in yeah. the original novella. Um, you know, what, and we get none of that here. What I do think that Carpenter picked up on was the hysteria, though, because there was like yeah. this like not trusting of other characters within this base that you're trapped in with a creature yeah, paranoia. Yeah. Com- coming down on them. Yeah. So the uh, I want to talk about that a little bit. The creature, mm-hmm. uh, it was due to budget. They wanted it to be they wanted it to be sort of a transforming, shape shifting creature. But they realized that like it's just not in the budget and it wasn't like, going to look as good as they wanted. But there are like early concept art and sketches of like it was going to be pla- like it was still going to be kind of a plant, but it was going to be shape shifting into humans and sh- like changing into other things. Yeah, that's tough, man, because I'm sure that it's like you have all these great ideas, but then you're just you're just bound by the reality of of what you can achieve with special effects in that yeah era. i mean even and like so l- like talk to me about the 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 design of the creature like what did you think i mean general? at times it looked okay um but i mean it's a it's a dude in a suit he's got yeah. some sharp gloves on he looks kind of like a frankenstein i couldn't monster, believe how much he looked say. like frankenstein i i kept yeah. being like this they literally were like just put frankenstein frankenstein's on monster we'll just get yeah. that out frankenstein's there <laughs> monster, yeah. uh i was reading that apparently how it was ho- tough to please howard hawks like he couldn't they kept trying to show him different things different makeups different like costumes that they were going to use and he wasn't happy with any of it and then eventually he was like Get a get a Frankenstein esque head and just make it look different, and so they went with like sort of a Frankenstein's monster creature, um, yeah, which you know it, I think it is very. Better, it looked better in like the dark sequence, like I said, when they did the fire, yeah. or when it was like um, outside and you could just kind of see a shape in the darkness. But like the the scene where it's walking down the hallway holding the big like two by four looking thing, that's when it looks the worst, and it oh, just yeah. it, it very clearly looks like just a dude. Yeah, I have a couple of things about the the thing here. So the cost of the thing throughout the budget of the film was forty thousand dollars in 1951, and I couldn't believe that because I was like, Jesus! Like it didn't look that nice. Because uh, if you if you adjust for inflation, that's equivalent to three hundred and seventy thousand dollars, yeah, ish. Yeah, I uh, mean, it's just they just didn't have the tech, you know. So, but what they were yeah. doing, it was like top of the line at the time. I'm sure. Right, and you were talking about it looked better in certain scenes. The close-ups of they had close-ups that they had shot of the thing, but they were removed because it was felt that the makeup could not hold up to the close scrutiny. Uh, the lack, and then you know, audiences and critics would go on to say that the lack of close-ups gave the cr- creature more mystery, and it was like from yeah. a distance, and you can't get a real look at his face. And you have to think like we're watching in basically, I don't know, I, I think it was HD the version we were watching. Yeah. Like think about the image quality back then. Like you're not able to really make out the face, make out it's just yeah. a shape coming at you in some cases because it's so far away yeah and and the best sequences were where you couldn't see it that well this is the things that like jaws would later learn (laughs) right uh the alien like i I, ridley scott was on that list and i i I thought like this is kind of a early alien story right like yeah very similar to the crew of the nostromo having to deal with an alien on the loose yeah the thing itself doesn't appear until an hour and 10 minutes into the film and i think it's only like an hour 30 hour 40 or something like that yeah 
So, yeah. so so what was your take on this? Because like I feel like I've answered all these questions about how I felt about the movie. Mm-hmm. This time watching it, I think you said this is your second time watching it. Mm-hmm. And now that we've covered the thing and, and read the story and everything, like how did it how did it hold up for you? How did it how did it compare? I think, you know, like you said, it's it's gonna be tough from a modern perspective. Like you're always gonna see the things of the time that that don't necessarily hold up today. But I do feel like I'm usually able to put myself in the shoes of an audience member at the time, as much as I can at least. And um you know, I can see where, having seen a lot of other movies of this era, you can see where this is, like, influential. And it would go on to, to influence a lot of other creatives mm. going forward with, like, we've talked about the paranoia, the the creature being sort of shrouded in darkness, and the scenes that are effective. Um, I, I think that Howard Hawks' style, this is something else I wanted to talk about. Um, you were talking about film growing up some. Uh, also at the time you had Hitchcock, you had very cinematic directors, like cinema was becoming, there was a language to cinema that was being defined that would, that would allow for metaphor through the camera lens and like sort of inferring, like, like trying to get the audience on board with like a shot representing something. And this was the case earlier back than this. I'm just saying, I think it was really coming into power around this time. And Howard Hawks isn't that director. He's a director, I think, from my research and everything, he's a director that is known for sort of improvising with actors and having a lot of dialogue, having the camera set so that they can um, like really act out the scenes. And I think we're picking up on actors. Th- th- I think this this is like a f- actor forward film for the time because you have, like you said, many people, tons of lines, long scenes where people are going back and forth and just able to like feel the scene out. And it's like, and I think early film is like theater in that way. You, it's like it's playing out in real time and yeah. like the imperfections are part of what makes it like nice and realistic. And um, so, you know, there's the lack the lack of like maybe really uh, intense cinematic shots going on. But mm-hmm. I think it's not that style of movie. And I think it also kind of works because it feels it makes it feel like more removed and like surgical, if that makes sense, or like analytical, where we're just like seeing everything that's happening to these people all at the same time, rather than um, the director really trying to influence anything that we're thinking. But, uh, you know, I'm a modern viewer. So like, there are things that that were like, pretty dated. And I, I, I really prefer super cinematic films that have the so like, this isn't necessarily my favorite type of film. But I do th- see a lot of what made it influential. And I, it's impressive to me, I think. It's really cool to see a director like this at the time. Um, so yeah. I, I did so enjoy I, it. I have to. I have to point out a. I think it was a joke. I don't know. Oh, I know what you're gonna um, say that that like put a fucking chill down my spine. Um, they they come into the room. They've all got their guns and their ropes, and they're ready to like to to go after the creature. And the guy na- who I guess they call Tex yeah. stands up and says, "What's going on? This looks like a lynching party." And I could not I believe that. I was like, couldn't Holy fucking believe shit. he said that. And it, it, it sent a chill down my spine because I was like, either this is supposed to be a joke about how racist this guy from Texas is, or worse, this is just a thing that like they thought was appropriate to say. Right. It's like even a as a joke thing. about Tex being kind of racist, it's not engaged with as if it's racist. None of the other characters are like, damn, I can't believe you just said that. Nobody says anything. They just go with right. it. And it just shows how much, I mean, like, after watching Lovecraft Country, like, I, I, I couldn't imagine, like, I don't know, it's just, it, the, the, the level of racism that was just every day, you know, 
shared by the white audience. They, they felt like they could put this in this movie and not even have to address it, and no one would bat an eye. Well, they didn't. I, I think genuinely, like the racism that's just embedded in society. I think that they didn't even think about it. I think that they were yeah, like, "This is kind of what it looks like," and they're like, "You know, this is a normal thing that that has it's happened." A guy from for, Texas, what he would yeah. say. It's fucking crazy, man. I couldn't believe it when he said that. I was like, holy. I literally, my mouth, my jaw dropped. I was like, holy shit. I, I had to go shit. back. I had to go back and, 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 and watch it again because I was like trying to figure out, was it a joke or was it just an observation? Like, what was it? And then I realized that this guy was supposed to be this Texan. And I was like, I guess they're trying to make a joke about this guy being a racist from Texas. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. I, could, I couldn't say whether I thought it was a joke or not. I thought it was a crazy line that... Yeah. You know, is show. There was shows, one like, Asian we cook at. I saw at one point. I don't know if you saw them. Yeah, I saw um, them. But other than that, there's not a single person of color in this entire film. Um, yeah. Completely devoid. Yeah, that was a that was a moment that I was like, and like, they don't get a line. I should say they're just in the background at one point. Yeah. Um, well, they made. Yeah. I, I think they said like one like coffee or something like. Oh yeah, you're something right. Like something that. like that. But yeah, not any substance. I mean, it's, it's, it just goes to show like how important like reclaiming some of this shit is because you're talking about like, this is basically the era that um lovecraft country is set in right um yeah. so it's so that's why it's so interesting to like come in and st- stick your claim in, in sci-fi um but anyway about this movie um i i had also had a weird sort of feeling of because this movie's so old i was like i i suspect that almost every person i am seeing on screen right now is dead I don't know yeah. if that's completely true, but we're talking about a movie that is 70 years old now. And, right. at, you know, most of these people had to at least be 20 um, or yeah. older. So we're talking about if there are any of them alive, they're well into their 90s. Um, but most likely most of them are, have passed away. Um, uh, you know, dog sleds, obvi- or, you know, all these dog teams, obviously, they're all gone. So it was like this weird and like the director is probably long dead. And I'm like, this is just a weird artifact of time at this point, right? Like it's it's almost not. It's not in any ways contemporary. <laughs> um, it, it's more about its legacy and how who it affected at this point. And it's like looking, it's like looking in a museum almost. It felt kind of like to me. That's exactly how it feels to watch early film to me. Like I feel like it's history. Like it is history yeah. at that point. You're seeing these people, and you know they're playing characters in this. But like uh, I always, you know, I end up finding myself in in films like this, thinking about that every once in a while. I didn't with this one, but. Where you're like, yeah, it's like, it, what were their lives like? What was the scene like this day when they yeah. shot? You know what I mean? And like, and then like, look at what they're and if, especially if it's a great well, and, film. And, and they're they're so old or dead now, yet here they are, you know, young right. and and in the prime of their lives. And and I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. Yeah, it's, I was just having the conversation recently about how you know we used to have like World War II veterans come in and talk to us in our in our like elementary school and middle school and stuff to like on Veterans Day that kind of thing and like how. Um, that's not really the case for much longer. I like it's like I really mean, it's, sad. It's, yeah, like, yeah. I, I imagine it's not. Yeah, it's crazy to think like that whole that entire generation. Like the I don't know. It's and it's like World War Two has always been such is a huge the part of generation. Is is what they? I think, I think they're, they're the greatest generation, right? World War Two. The greatest. Okay, maybe I don't know. I did want to so say we Howard have the Hawks. super carrot though. <laughs> yeah, I, I the vegetable thing was really interesting to me. Like I guess it kind of worked for like what they wanted to get across. But it also was like really cheesy sci-fi sort of storytelling. Yeah. I feel like that like would have happened around this time. And, and that's another thing. This 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 movie does sort of represent 
a couple of things like the there was hysteria over ufos and aliens and stuff at the time and yeah, this is like they post- were like this is a this is a saucer and the way they like um looked at each other was like i think they thought the audience would be well yeah. on board with like this is a flying saucer so it must yeah. have been a thing at the time yeah. and then the other thing is uh like the red scare and like uh communism was starting to build up and some i think there was like some representation as to like uh i don't know alienating russians or something like that because they did at one point even mention like the russians they don't even have a plane like this and uh mm. i think like it can represent like society's worry of like nuclear war that's coming up and like uh there's specifically um it became a sci-fi a huge sci-fi thing but the look to the skies uh, keep watch look to the look uh yeah the keep final line of the movie final line and that became it's been referenced thousands of times and it does i think it does represent sort of like the the flying saucer ufo alien stuff with also like the red sea like what are the like what would eventually become the cold war what, what's going to happen with all of the tension with russia um yeah so that's interesting uh, to think about Another thing that we uh, we were just touching on sort of like American ideals and stuff in our hunt for Red October. And I, I kept thinking, like, here's some proto-American ideals in this movie because we have the who's who's, you know, the main character who we're rooting for. Right. Like he's just kind of, you know, every man military guy. And who are the people arrayed against him? The scientist who is trying to understand the alien right. and uh, is like. Is, is not thinking about, you know, the safety of the people in the camp and is more obsessed with, with you know, trying to, to um, you know, advance humanity through technology. And then you have bureaucracy, right? Like the people who are on the other end of the phone telling them to, to not, and it's like, you don't know what's like on here on the ground. And then we see so much of that carried over into like Alien, you know, or, or, or so many other movies where, um, the scientists and oh, and then the press, right? Like this guy of the press, he's like he's kind of a good character, but then um, the, he's also the butt of a lot of jokes, and he faints at one point later, and everybody laughs at him because he's not manly. And uh, there's just so much of the uh, like ingrained American culture here early on that has gone on to be so toxic. Um, you know, hating on the press, hating on elites, hating on scientists. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, just, I can't help but notice that nowadays. It's weird because like yeah. I, this is something that I would have never picked up on, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago probably. But yeah. now I'm like, I can't not see it. I mean, it, the, the, the cliche and the idea of like a mad scientist and like the scientists like being so into it. And like, at, po- at points i was on the scientist's side like there were times yeah. where i was like you know things <laughs> we sh- until things start to get violent and people start dying like i'm like why would you be so gung-ho about being like uh destroyed or yeah keep, well whatever, like. it, it, he makes a great point early on where he's like he woke up in a strange place and he immediately got attacked and shot at because that yeah. is what happens yeah. the guy sees that he's standing up and turns around and shoots his gun at him <laughs> like immediately right. um so i was like clearly the humans are in the wrong here they've they've provoked whatever this is and he's like yeah and then he gets attacked by dogs <laughs> and i was like yeah that probably is pretty shitty <laughs> Get shot at, go outside, get attacked by dogs. That was a wild scene, by the way. I mean, he's like among the dogs, like throwing one of them around. And stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was wild. I also had uh, to think about like the safety of the dogs in this movie. I was like, it's 1951. I really hope. I'm sure it wasn't good. It was going <laughs> at least somewhat above above the board, uh, above board. The uh, I, I read that Howard Hawks asked the U.S. 
Air Force for assistance in making the film. He he was refused because the top brass felt that such cooperation would compromise the U.S. government's official stance that UFOs didn't exist. Um, wow. So I, I like this idea of like um, a scientist trying to get get some research out of the situation before it's in the hands of the government who might hide it like sort of how area 51 alien if like aliens were found uh a scientist if they had just been able to get some research in before they were able to hide it forever i think maybe that goes along with like this alien thing as well like people worried about aliens at the time well Uh, and the press guy at least gets on the radio and he seems to be making a call out to lots of people um and he I thought it was interesting. He makes a comparison to like Noah, Noah's Ark, and then the Ark of Lightning that took down the. I, don't I know, know it, was, right? it was very. I don't know. It was, it was like, like overwritten. Po- but it, was it was like poetry funny. almost. Like he was trying <laughs> yeah, to like yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, it was. I, I'm sure it was kind of cool. And then like he had just fainted in an earlier scene, so it was weird. It was like they had to undermine him a little bit before he gets this moment at the end where he can. The faint was just cool like because I, I don't know. They the wanted faint it was to be way like, over the top. He, he's good at this one thing, but yeah. Cause he had a moment where I, I was kind of cheering for him where he was talking about how they were like, Oh, you shouldn't be here. And he's like, I shouldn't have been in Okinawa either. And like all this other stuff, which I, I, I thought was kind of cool. It was like, Hey, you know, I've been to dangerous places, which a lot of people like, you know, who do this kind of journalism are extremely brave and they have to be. Um, yeah. And so I was just frustrated with him fainting later. It, it just felt like out of character for that, for what, what they'd set up. I actually, I actually, I, you know, I don't know if it was within character or not, but I saw one of the actors like sort of like crack a smile or whatever as he like fainted. Oh, really? He was like laughing. And I was like, I wonder if that yeah, was. Like, I don't, it may have been of... in character though, because he might have been like laughing at the, the yeah, press guy. True. So, yeah. it, it, so also, this movie is like weirdly horny from like a lot of the, yeah. the men. Yeah. Like, there's the start up starts off with a guy at the table who just can't stop talking about theoretical women and like how much he wants to be with them yeah um and then yeah like all the guys like having like a you know having a moment at the end where they're trying to get the main captain to to end up with were they trying to get her to say she was gonna marry him or something i think so yeah that was was the implication yeah yeah but at the very i will give that like she was kind of in on it like she yeah. was kind of like going like yeah listen to how much money does he make and this and that like I, i don't know i it's like you said it felt like a hollywood ending at the time where it was like he gets the girl kind of thing yeah um, but, but she was in on she was a, a not she was an atypical memorable yeah. character in yeah. a way that i wouldn't have expected her to be so as much as there was a lot of that like classic trappings um she was she was a little different and i appreciate it i mean there was there is also the another thing we should definitely say with this relationship between the main character and this main female character she like basically says that he was like getting handsy when he was getting drunk and all this stuff and i was yeah. just like and of course that's probably par for the course at this time well like, and he idea. like he like imposingly like kind of threatens her a couple times yeah like he's gonna hit it was her like and... violence and stuff I was like what the fuck yeah dude, this is i mean so... violence between you know men and their spouses was unfortunately quite commonplace yeah yeah um you know in that era so it just goes to show how uh how terrible white men are i guess i don't know yeah, <laughs> we're right. in our yeah. <laughs> we're in our <laughs> definitely uh, uh what, a, what a what a history we have to look on back on james i know with right pride. <laughs> yeah Jesus. Uh, and, uh, and by with pride, I mean with shame. <laughs> so um, I have two other things I wanted to get to. Uh, this okay. film was included among the American Film Institute's 2001 list of the top 100 most heart-pounding American movies. I wanted to ask you, like, was your heart pounding at any point? Where, did you feel tension or was it all just like very, it was too, too uh, dated? 
It was too dated. Like, I I can say, like, again, it's like looking back through, uh, you know, at a museum of something and go, like, oh, I can tell that this at the time was very scary. But for me now, it didn't do much for me. I wouldn't recommend this to a modern viewer who has no interest in history. And it was just like, let's just watch a good movie. I wouldn't be like, yeah, let's throw this thing on. It 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 doesn't hold up in that way. But if you're really interested to know, like, what led to films like Alien or what led to films like the original, you know, The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, um, then in that sense, it could be interesting. I mean, yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do is like find favorite movies, go to their directors, who influenced them, and then and then go to see, like you said, historically, the roots of what, where these ideas came from and stuff. And it's, it's really fascinating stuff. And like, I recommend it to people, but it can be tough. If you grew up watching, I would say, black and white films from the 30s 40s 50s it's going to be a lot easier than if you're like a modern viewer that hasn't seen a lot um and i will say that fire sequence um that was one of the best looking sequences in black and white i think i've seen it looked incredible the way that the 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 fire got so white against this really dark room um the contrast was really cool and actually it was like something that i i don't feel like you would get the same effect with color so it was it was a uniquely black and white thing that, that looked good. We need to watch some film noir because if you like the contrast, like that's like as far as like painting with light and artistic uh, things going on and shots looking amazing, they, uh, the contrast and like the black and white is is amazing and that kind of stuff. And I agree though, this was a this was a really memorable scene and um, yeah, dangerous seeming, but fun. yeah, it seemed like it really was. Uh, Last one. We were talking about the fire okay. and stuff. So when producer and co-director Howard Hawks attempted to get insurance for the creature, five insurance companies turned him down because the thing was to be frozen in a block of ice, hacked by axes, attacked by dogs, lit on fire, and electrocuted. <laughs> <laughs> I was essentially kind of wondering how they got that lightning effect. Um, it, some sort of, some you know, because there's obviously no CGI in the 50s, so yeah. they had to, you know. Oh, and also, we didn't, I forgot to mention the burning thing uh, title sequence. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, was I here, and I was surprised. I was like, I thought this was invented for the John Carpenter movie, but no. Um, I don't remember if we touched on this or not, but like, it, it looked very, very similar, if not identical, to what we later get in the Carpenter's the yeah. thing. Yeah, uh, we talked about it in our Carpenter coverage of, of the thing. And yeah, I mean, that was Carpenter's homage. That was so cool. And I, I agree. Like, I had forgotten. It's slightly different, obviously, because he was doing it with yeah. like more modern tech, but it, it was totally the homage that, the, and it, it still looks awesome in the 50s version. It's it like does, this like yeah. flickering, like, it's, it's yeah, really cool. I put cool. out a, a Instagram story, I think, where I was checking it out because I was, I was quite taken with it. It was cool. Yeah, very cool. All right, well, that's going to be the end of our 30th bonus episode. And until next time. Thanks for listening.